Now, as we jump into Revelation, um, I know that, that a lot of you are just like, man, when are we getting to the weird stuff? Man, I cannot wait. It's going to be amazing. And we're going to get there. But for, for, the next, uh, for the next couple of weeks or so, we're going to be looking at very, very practical application. Um, and, and really, when it comes to studying Revelation, uh, people usually make one or two mistakes, uh, I think one or two errors. Either they only teach from one to three and they don't teach the rest of it, or they teach the rest of it and don't focus on Revelation one to three. It's all good. It's all part of the blessing that's been promised for those who read and hear and then respond to what, what Christ is saying. But as we jump in, let me ask you this question. How many of you just really get excited when someone rebukes you? You're just like, man, I, you know, like, like you love, love, love going in for a performance evaluation at work. You're like, man, you wake up that day. It's like, man, I just can't wait. This is going to be the best day of the year. Let's do this. Now, probably most of us don't. Now, what we don't understand is that that rebuke is a necessary part of growth, Right? I mean, what do you do to your kids, parents? There are times you have to rebuke them and you're like, no, that's not what you do. You do this. No, we don't do that at the table. We do this. No, we don't say that in a public place and embarrass mommy and daddy. Will you do this, right? But it's interesting. The older we get, the more sensitive we are to rebuke. Have you noticed that? Like, it's almost like our, it's like, you can't tell me what to do. It's, it's like our, our identity is somehow so tied to our performance or whatever that if anybody rebukes us, we take personal offense. It's interesting because I think the way a person responds to rebuke probably speaks to a person's level of maturity. Um, a, lot of, a lot of times we just get defensive, get angry. Sometimes we're like, yeah, you don't know what you're talking about, denial. Or sometimes it's just like, you know, discouragement, like, I am such a loser. Well, no, that's not the point. Rebuke is not meant to say, hey, loser, you know, just give up and quit. No, it's like, hey, let me share something that's going to help you grow. Well, today as we jump into to, uh, Revelation chapter 2, we're actually going to open up uh, Christ's rebuke to a group of churches. And so over the next little bit, we're, we're going to be, we're, we're going to see what Christ is saying to seven churches. Guys, we've got a map, I think. Throw, throw that up there. This will, you see the seven churches he's going to be writing to. So there to the far left of the, of the screen, of the picture, you'll see Patmos, which is where John wrote, uh, you know, he was there for 18 months in exile. He lived in Ephesus, and we're going to start off by looking at the message to the church in Ephesus. But you'll see all of the churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Sardis, Philadelphia, uh, Laodicea, Sia, uh, Pergamum, the, uh, uh, Thyatira, they were all tied by major Roman roads. And so now there were a lot of other churches going on, but these were seven key influential churches, probably in large part because of their location and the, you know, the, uh, the roads getting there and all that sort of thing. But when, when John wrote his, you know, what he had received, this revelation from Christ, the first letter that he wrote went to the church in Ephesus, which actually makes sense because it's where John was living. After John left Patmos, he went back to Ephesus. He was part of the, the church there. And, and so he deli delivered the first message there and then it just went from, from church to church. And we're gonna jump into that over the next little bit. But here's what I'm going to ask you to do as we jump in. 
As we look at these messages to churches over the next few weeks, all of us are going to identify in some way to some of the churches, probably more than one of the churches, maybe multiple churches. Which means that if we listen and we're like, ha ha, man, I'm glad I wasn't at church in Ephesus. Jesus gave it to them straight. You know, terrible to be you. We're going to miss the point. Like if you just do a surface level reading and let's just get through this, you're going to miss the point of this. Here's what I'm asking for us to do today is to receive what Jesus might be saying to us today because we're all part of the church. And I think what we're going to find is that the significance and importance of the message, it wasn't just relevant then, it's still relevant today. And I believe that God, if we will allow ourselves, we will open ourselves up instead of saying, well, that's not me or, you know, denial or getting mad about whatever. If we'll receive, which to receive rebuke, to to receive correction is to listen, to acknowledge the truth to objectively say, well, yeah, that is true. You know, there's t- sometimes you don't, I think we get mixed up in the way that a rebuke is given and we actually ignore the rebuke because we don't like how it was given. Now you actually got to like dig through that and, and say, does this apply? And Lord, here I am. I want to receive your rebuke because I want to be what you've called me to be. And so if you're here today and you're, you're a non-believer, first of all, love that you're here. You are always welcome here. But obviously, since this is a message to the church, he's writing to people who profess to be believers in Christ. They believe that what Christ did on the cross makes a difference and that we can be saved from our sins because of Christ. And, and so we're living for Christ. So he's writing to the church. Now, as we go through these seven messages, you're going to find some consistencies in how Jesus structures his message to the churches. And I'm going to point some of that out today as we go. First, let's just jump in here into Revelation 2.1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Real quick. Right above that, if you, if you have your Bible, go up to, to chapter one, the last verse of chapter one. He gives us an idea of what the stars and lampstands are. The stars are referring, are referring to the angels. There's an angel who's, over, you know, who's overlooking each of the churches. The golden lampstands are referring to these seven churches that, that are there in Asia because by this point, historically, Jerusalem uh, man has, has come under siege by Rome. The temple has been destroyed and many, many of the the Jews have fled, many of them to Asia Minor, to the area that's now Turkey today and other parts like that. And so, so he's, he's writing to them and, and he's, he's saying, this is who I am. And so you'll notice that at the beginning of every message, Jesus describes himself. Every single church begins with a description where he says, this is who I am. So if you're like, man, I just wish I knew who Jesus was. Well, he tells us right here, the words of him who... And then the description that he gives is not just, you know, this general king of kings and lord of lords. No, it's not that. It's it's actually, man, very, very uh, intentional. It's not random. And, And it's very applicable to the challenge that the churches are facing. But he goes on from there, and, and, and you'll notice in each message this, this phrase where he says, I know, and then he's going to tell us what he knows. So look, look at what he says about the church in Ephesus. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. 
Now then what he's going to do is he's going to, in each one of the messages, move to either an encouragement to persevere to the faithful churches or a challenge to repent in order to escape judgment to the churches that, that he has something against. And so let's see what he says about the church in Ephesus, verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, he comes back to another commendation. He said, yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And we're going to come back and explain who the Nicolaitans were. But then he's going to, to go to another consistent theme you'll find in each one of his messages, which is a challenge to hear, not, not just to, to listen and like, oh yeah, I, I heard you, but to actively hear, to, to respond with action. He says in verse seven, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then he ends every one of his messages with a promise. That's interesting because the call to repent or the call to persevere comes to the church as a whole. Like, like we are the church, you know, Grace Bible Church, we're a local body, but we're part of the church. Like the church is people, not a building, right? So it doesn't matter what's over, like, like every church has a different name, title, whatever. Man, what, what really matters is that we, we belong to God. We're the bride of Christ. And so what he, what he does, though, is he gives a, you know, general uh, rebuke or, or encouragement to the church as a whole, but then he has a promise for each individual person who makes up the church. And here's what he says here at the, the last part of verse 7. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And don't miss this. Every one of the promises that he's going to, to give us are not tied to this life, they're tied to eternal life. And here's why. Like for us, we're like, if, you're, you know, if we're living the best life, everything's gonna go right with my marriage. Kids are gonna grow up, no problems. Never get sick. No, that's, that's literally not at all what scripture says. Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. I mean, so, so let, let's get over this whole idea that the following Jesus means that, that, that we're gonna have every blessing we can think of in this life. Now, does God get in his grace provide blessings in this life? Yes. But what we see in Revelation is similar to what we see in Job. There are two stories going on at the same time. There's one story that's going on here that we see, and there's a story that's going on in heaven that we don't always see. And because we don't know what's going on up there, and we're just giving glimpses, a lot of times we find our hope in what we see here. But Jesus' promises are tied to what's gonna happen there. But there's something that I want us to grasp as we dig in. The, the general theme, the big theme for chapters two and three is this. Jesus knows his bride, the church. Jesus knows his bride, the church. And if you're, if you're here and maybe that language is weird, you're like, okay, what's the deal with the whole bride thing? Well, in the Old Testament, when it talks about God and, and we have his, his interaction with his, his called out people, Israel, Many times he refers to himself as a bridegroom and Israel as his bride. The prophets, you go through Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, even the minor prophets use this language quite a bit. But then as we get into the New Testament, we have Jesus, who's a second person of the Trinity. He's God. 
we, we see him referred to as the bridegroom, the church as, as his bride. And what I'm, what I'm proposing is that what we see here in Jesus' first message, Jesus knows his bride, the church, and we're gonna see this all through these messages. And when I say that he knows her, he doesn't know her the way that, that you know people that you follow on Instagram. You know what I'm saying? Like, like some of you are like, yeah, I know what Julia Roberts had for lunch yesterday and who she had lunch with. Because she posted on Instagram. And you know, like you go to YouTube and you're like, man, I've watched that pastor so many times, I just feel like I know him. You don't. Like you don't. Like there, there are a lot of times that, that, that we know about, we know of, but we don't know on an intimate level. But Jesus knows his bride, not like the way we know someone on Instagram but an intimate level because what it says in, in, in uh, verse two is that Jesus is walking among the seven golden lampstands. Jesus is present through his spirit with his church. He knows his church. Does that comfort you or trouble you? I know comfort is a spiritual answer to give, by the way. <laughs> but here's the deal. My kids, they're up in college, when I show up, they're like, they are so glad to see me because dad brought his wallet and we're going out to a better restaurant than what we got in the cafeteria. <laughs> but there were times when my kids were growing up, they didn't like to see me because when I would walk in, I would catch them doing something. I said, no, you can't do that. Like they, they were not happy. And so there are times that this whole idea of being known, it's comforting when we are aware of our need for him it's troubling when we're made aware of the fact that we've been focused on living our life without him. Make sense? And so this whole idea that Jesus knows his bride is at the heart of what he's going to show us. Now, the, the, the first thing that I want you to write down, and, and so what I'm gonna do, I know if you're taking notes, you're like, Keith, that is so weird that you would put a one and there's no two. Why would you do that? Just put the big point. But no, I want you to hang with me because every week we're going to be adding to a list. And as we're going through this series, you know, for instance, in, in your message guide next week, I'm going to have point one there. By the time we get through, you're going to have all seven points, what we learn from the churches. But here's what we're going to see in the message to, to Ephesus is this. Jesus knows what his church really loves. Jesus knows what his church really loves. So you give you a little background in New Testament times. In fact, when this is written, Ephesus is the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire, arguably uh, the wealthiest. In fact, it's said that when a new emperor came to power, it was required that he would sail into, it's called the Great Harbor of Ephesus. It was just just, it's beautiful. When you, if you have, if some of you are geeks like me, you like studying uh, architecture or even, you know, uh, archaeolo archaeological uh, backgrounds of, of architecture and all that sort of thing. Man, what you see in Ephesus, I wish we had time to show you through this. I don't. Man, like literally their sidewalks were mosaics, like artwork. You're walking on artwork. They, they in their homes, had, uh, in, in the richest of the homes, they had, they had central air systems. We think air conditioning started with carrier. It didn't. It literally, they were doing that back then. They had indoor plumbing, indoor running water. It's unbelievable the technology and, and what you see there in, in Ephesus. It was just a great, great place, a lot of wealth and all of that, but very, very pagan. There were some huge temples there, uh, entrenched, uh, 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 idolatrous uh, religions that were, were there. 
So in 52 AD, Peter, I'm sorry, not Peter, Paul and the husband-wife team of Aquila and Priscilla uh, sailed into the harbor. And they had no idea when they, when they stepped foot on, on the shore there in Ephesus and began to walk their way uh, through the city that they were beginning to kick off what I think, I know it's arguable, but arguably the three most fruitful years of the Apostle Paul's ministry unbelievable what took place there. When they came, there was absolutely no church, but when they, when they left three years later, man, it wasn't just a, a church was established. It was a thriving church, a church that had been so well catechized and taught that when Paul left, he said, listen, in essence, I'm leaving you with a clear conscience. I've, I've, I've taught you everything that I know. I've given you the full counsel of, of, of the gospel. I, there's no excuse like they were a strong church. In fact, they were known to be a strong church for decades and decades and decades. Uh, if you know anything about New Testament characters, Apollos, who was one of the great teachers of the early church, he, he spent time there and taught there. Um, I mean, obviously there was, there was Paul, there was, uh, there was Timothy, who was uh, the young man that Paul mentored and raised up. In fact, when you read First and Second Timothy, uh, he's writing them to Timothy, who's a, who is coming into leadership there in the church in Ephesus. He became the bishop of the church in Ephesus and literally was killed because he actually stood out. They were, they were having a pagan procession and he came out and rebuked that and they, they literally beat him to death when he was in his 80s. But he was an incredible, Incredible leader. They had, uh, the, let's see, well, I mean, John himself lived there. I mean, they had it all. It, but, but when Paul left, in fact, I, I, I say, do a little research, write down Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 30. Do a little research this week. Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 30. And actually, that whole last section of Acts 20 talks about when Paul left Ephesus, his final words to the church. And what he did before he left, he warned them. He said, there's going to be wolves that are coming in with false teaching, they're gonna to try to draw away disciples. And boy, was he ever right. Because what we know from church history is that, is that is exactly what happened. Since the church was so influential and large, and, and they were, they, they were very influential when it came to setting the example for church governance, for how you're to do things, to write doctrine, doctrine that, that, that people who wanted to make a name for themselves, and they had the wrong motivation, they, they literally wanted to get their own following. They wanted to get a name for themselves and to benefit off the gospel, to cheapen the gospel. They would show up with their heresies and try to draw people away. But man, here's what I love. Jesus commends them for the fact that they didn't fall for that. And, and the first thing I want you to write down is this. Jesus honors right belief and strong convictions. He honored the fact that they were able to, to stay true to right doctrine. They were able to discern wrong teaching. And that whole reference in, in verse 6 to the Nicolaitans, that's gonna, that group's going to show up again. And there are two early church historians by the name of Irenaeus and Hippolytus who, who writing of the Nicolaitans give us some background info. Another thing you might want to check out for research is Acts chapter 6. In Acts chapter 6, uh, the first part of the, the chapter shows that there's a controversy that breaks out in the early church. You know, like at, at the end of Acts 2, everybody's sharing everything and everything's hunky-dory and all that. Acts 6, not so much. 
The Greek, Greek Christians and the, Hebrew, the, the Jewish Christians are at odds with one another. Like, they're getting more benefits than we are. You're taking care of them before you're taking care of us. And the apostles like, are you kidding me right now? They felt like I felt when I get people arguing about music and the, the color of the carpet. I'm like, is this the biggest thing we can talk about? Like, are you serious? Let's get a, let's get a group of people together to deal with the controversy. They, they did it. So they raised up seven deacons, six of them, Came, they, they, were, uh, they were Christians with a Jewish background. There was one guy by the name of Nicholas. You'll see him mentioned there. He was actually, uh, he was a convert. He converted from paganism to Judaism. And then later, we, we, we read that he converted from Judaism to Christianity. And we don't know where or how, but he was also teaching. He wasn't just a deacon, he was also a teacher. But the followers of, of Nicholas somehow derailed we don't have record whether it was Nicholas himself. We don't have record of his teachings. We just know that the Nicolaitans, the people that, that, that came from him, his disciples, if you will, somehow went off the rails and they began to propagate this false teaching that says you can be a pagan and a Christian at the same time. That you can, you can hold on, you can say Jesus is Lord out of one side of your mouth and, and uh, you, you, you can declare your allegiance to the emperor at the same time. That, that you can make commitments over here and take communion with a clear conscience and at the same time have sex with temple prostitutes with the temple of Artemis. In essence, they actually taught what has become, listen, it, nothing is new under the sun. It's, it's going on today that says we can actually serve Jesus and love the world at the same time. We can hold on to both. You can have them both in your life. It's absolutely not true. You know what Jesus said about what they do? He says, I hate their practices. Now, there's different variations of the word hate. Like, I hate the vegetable peas. Hate, hate, hate peas. Like, if you, if you, if you invite, ever have me over to your house and you serve peas, you'll pass them to me and I'm gonna pass them on to Lori and she's gonna take one for the team. She's gonna eat the peas for the family. Like, I'm just not gonna eat them. Hate them, hate them. I hate the University of Kentucky Wildcats basketball team with all that is within me. I'm an Indiana University fan. We hate the color blue. We hate UK, UK blue. Like I hate their basketball team and I rejoice greatly every time they get knocked out in the first round of the NCAA tournament. Love it. I hate cats. Like I have, I, I like, like there are all types of things that we can use. We say, I hate, I hate, I hate. But, but, but it's all, it's different levels of the word hate. Like, like I, don't, I don't hate cat in the sense that I'm gonna kill cats. Been tempted a couple times, haven't done it. <laughs> but there's a difference between, you know, I just dislike something and, and the word, the Greek word that's translated hate here, it's, a, it's a M-I-S-E-O, meseo, and this Greek word means to, to abhor to strongly dislike, to find something repulsive, to have strong animosity towards something. And this is how it describes Jesus' take on this whole idea that you can call me Lord and hang on to the world at the same time. I hate that. I find that repulsive. And we actually need to listen to what Jesus hates. We know what he loves and we know who he loves. He loves us. He loves the world. He hates this idea. When I say world, I'm not talking about this. When we're talking about, when I say he hates the world, it's a spiritual, it's this invisible spiritual system that is in opposition to everything that Christ came to destroy. Jesus says, 
I hate this, and I want to thank you for joining me in your hatred of us. He actually commends them for this, which is why probably when they're hearing this, they're very shocked at what Jesus says to rebuke them. Because somewhere along the way, while they begin to focus and they stood for right doctrine, and they were very, very intentional on that, they, they practiced great discernment, somehow their love shifted a bit. In fact, quite a bit. And Jesus addresses this because Jesus finds that the good is undermining the best. As he's writing to the, Ephesus, to the church in Ephesus, he's finding that they have made something that is a means to be their priority. And he's like, I want to call you out on that. Which had to shock the church because they're like, man, we're doing everything right. We're standing for what really matters. And Jesus says this, no, but I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. I commend you for your right belief, but you've lost your love. You've abandoned your love. Now, any of you remember your first love? Remember that? Like, I remember when Lori and I started dating, I asked her out on a date. Our very first date, we went to a, uh, an amusement park in Cincinnati, Ohio called Kings Island. And uh, man, you know, it was, I was just so excited. And I'd asked her out for the first time. We was a double date. We were with another couple. And so on the way, we stopped. I, why do you remember these details? Like, we stopped at an Arby's. And here's the detail that I cannot forget. They had a special going on, four roast beef sandwiches for $4. And I'm like, what do you know? First date and a great deal. And so I took the four roast beef sandwiches for $4, gave Lori one and I ate three, man. I was like, this is a win. So we eat, we leave, we, we go to Kings Island. And so we, we show up and we walk through the, the park and it was, it was actually a, not a lot of people there. So the very first uh, ride that we rode, at that point, it was a newer roller coaster called the Vortex. Guys, we have a picture of that. That's the, that's the very first ride that we went on. So we, we get in line and we got on there and the ride lasted about a minute and 27 seconds. And about 17 seconds into the ride, I'm like, I got a problem. And by God's grace and lots of prayer, I made it through the end of the ride. But as soon as we got out, I was like, hey, I'll be right back. I'll see you later. And I booked it to the nearest uh, men's room. I'm going to leave those details there. Let's just say I came back and, and, and they were standing there and they're like, hey, look, man, this is a great ride. Nobody's here. We can actually get right on and ride this ride again. And I'm like, oh, we're good, we're good. So I, I get on there again. This time it was 37 seconds into the ride. I'm like, Houston, we have a problem. Again, we get done, I run. Four times throughout that night, man, I had to make a run of shame. And I'm like, we got home and I'm like, it's over, it's done. This is never gonna happen. That's the last time I'm seeing her. And as I tried to apologize, she's like, it's not that big of a deal. Like, you're human, okay, whatever. I'm like, well, I will never eat three Arby sandwiches ever again if you go out with me. <laughs> but no, in all seriousness, I'm like, hey, man, if she's not giving up on me after that terrible, like, top 10 most embarrassing nights of my life, like, hey, this might work out. And man, so we begin to talk, and we begin to write notes, and we would have those hour-long, two-hour-long conversations that end with, hey, you hang up, no, you hang up, no, you hang up, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> 
And dude, man, like I, I had all the feels, man. It was amazing. I was in love. This is great. And it all culminated with, with me getting to the point in October of, of 1998 of asking her to be my wife. And we planned to get married the next fall. But man, the more I was into this, I'm like, no, I'm all going to marry her sooner now. And so the next summer, it was June 19th of 99. Man, they played the dun, dun, da, da. And she walked down the aisle by herself. And I'm like, oh. I am the luckiest man in the world, and I can't tell you everything that happened in the ceremony. I just know that she came down the aisle alone, but we walked out together, and I'm like, this is the best. And I, was, I, I just had this thought that, you know, this intimacy, this closeness that we had, all it's gonna do is just multiply and grow because now we're together all the time. We're spending you know, the evenings with each other. Now, now we're sleeping together. All of this, this is gonna be the best thing in the world. But you wanna find out? <laughs> that doesn't happen automatically. <laughs> and I'm just gonna, I'm looking around, is Lori here? Okay, so. <laughs> Honestly, guys, early on, my first year or two of marriage, I was a jerk. And I am not proud. And, and it wasn't like I was ever an intentional jerk. But, but, but here's why I was a jerk. I took what we had for granted. And I assumed that what... We, had been so intentional and, and had been cultivated so carefully and we spent time and, and man, we wanted to spend time and all of that, 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 that would just automatically happen because we had a ceremony and a certificate and, and we're, we're sleeping together. Doesn't happen that way. It got to the place where Lori and I had a straight up conversation of, dude, we can't live our lives like this. It's like we're living, we're two independent people, something, this isn't, I don't know, this isn't, the way it's supposed to be. And we, we had to work our way through this. What, what does it look like to, to be intentional about a relationship when you think, oh, I've arrived, we're married. It's gonna happen naturally. No, I, f I found out that I have to pursue my wife as much after I'm married as I did before I was married if that intimacy's gonna continue. Some of you could handle some preaching right there. That's good right there. I'll amen myself for that. That's good. But no, uh, this, whole, this, whole, this whole thing is that Jesus saw them doing some good things, but somewhere along the line, their love shifted, and, and instead of loving Christ most, they begin to love being right most. They, they, they shifted, their do, man, their doctrine was great, their discernment, calling out false teaching, that was good. But they weren't doing it from a place of love. I mean, what spouse would love to hear their spouse say, come here, I'll give you a kiss, because we're married. Come here, well, let's make love, I guess, because we're married. Dude, that'll be like, that's a turn off, you know what I'm saying? Like, who wants that? But in essence, don't, don't miss this. The reason why God uses relational terms is because we get it. In fact, Paul wrote in Ephesians 5 that this whole idea of marriage was given to us so we would better understand God's relationship with his bride, or Christ's relationship with his bride, the church. And just like you wouldn't want to have a relationship where it's just mechanical, you do the right thing but just because you have to, you're faithful just because you have to, you do the right thing just because you have to, Jesus doesn't want it either. 
And so the good thing of being faithful supplanted the main thing of loving Christ. And the good undermined the best. And so Jesus rebukes them for that. And he does this because, and I want you to write this down, Jesus wants his bride's first love. He said, you abandoned your first love, and I want you to go back. I want you to go back and, and, and love how you loved before. I want you to go back and do what you did before. In essence, Jesus doesn't want love's leftovers. He wants the love you had at first. When the church in Ephesus was launched, they were passionate they were passionate for sharing Jesus. They were passionate about, about the great commission. They were passionate about the great commandment of loving God with everything they have, loving their neighbor as their self. And somehow, some way, a, a, along the way, things changed. They, they got so accustomed and they, they were guarding so carefully the truth of the gospel that their love and wonder of the gospel as well as their love for other people and ultimately their love for Christ diminished and Jesus calls them out on this. And church, I'm just gonna say something. This, you, you can email me. Send in my notes, it's dangerous, but here, let's do this. There's something that, that, is, that is beginning to define the church over the last few years, especially since COVID. Now I'm just gonna call it out. And the church literally is doing the same thing that's going on with Ephesus. We're getting caught up in being right. We're getting caught up in, in good things, of standing for, for good things. But, but somehow along, along the way, we're missing out on our motivation of loving Christ and living out the great commandment. And it's possible for us to do the right thing in the wrong way. And this anger and this bitterness and a divisive spirit that is marking the, the, the American church is sin and it has to be repented of. And maybe you moved here escaping California or Washington or Oregon or Ohio where I came from or whatever. We're all from somewhere else. And you're, and, and you're like, man, we're going to make sure nothing like this happens in Idaho. And you're getting mad. You're throwing punches. And you're blazing trails on social media. Listen to me. We should stand for the right thing. He commended their stance for truth. But he said, you have abandoned your first love. Church, it is time for us to do a little soul searching and say, in me standing for what is right, and guys, we are always going to stand for right. I just had the opportunity this week to sit down with NPR. They, they, they're doing an article. Uh, they, they sat down with Lifeline Pregnancy Center, myself, different other people here in the area. They're writing an article on, you know, one year anniversary of the Dobbs case, you know, the whole uh, abortion thing. And, and, you know, in, in the thing, my, my, like, I'm like, I can't water down what, what God says about this. We're not going to water this down. We're going to stand for truth. But I'm going to tell you why, guys. If we ever start doing it and we miss our love for our Savior as our inspiration, guys, we're going to get this same rebuke that he gave the church in Ephesus. Because somewhere along the line, they abandon. But abandoning, I think, begins with forgetting and forgetting's not a good thing. One time I went to the grocery store and pulled my groceries in the trunk and got home and got a phone call and forgot that I had groceries in the trunk. And like, like two days later, I'm like, what is that? 
smell. Like, there's something weird going on. Like, four days in, like, I had my Scentsy thing going on and everything. Like, in the car, it wasn't even, it was like, dude, Scentsy's got a new aroma. It smells like spoiled milk. I don't know what's going on. So, uh, so I, I went to get, I was going to a game and I opened to put my chair in and I'm like, oh, yeah, it was spoiled milk. Forgetting is a bad thing. But forgetting leading to abandonment of what it's all about is a terrible thing. And it's something that Jesus calls his church to repent of. In fact, let me just close with this. It's so easy for us to maintain our separation from the world that we neglect our adoration of the Savior and Jesus is not okay with that. He wants your first love. He wants my first love. He wants his church's first love. And and, and the big takeaway that I have, we're going to have a takeaway from each one of the letters as we work our way through this, is this. What we do matters to Christ, but so does why we do it. The motivation is what matters. If your motivation is, I'm doing this because I'm right, so my peer group, they're going to tell me what a great social justice warrior I am or what a great justice warrior I am or whatever it is, wherever you find yourself, you're missing the point. Our motivation matters. Have you abandoned your first love? I've heard people say, you know, I just kind of, well, is it the Righteous Brothers or who are they saying, I've lost, I love and feeling, or whoever it was. Some of you are like, oh, he got it wrong. But you, you, don't, you don't lose it so that you walk away from it. And that's why Jesus calls his bride to repentance. Verse five, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, he said, I'll come and, and, and take away your, your lampstand. In essence, he's gonna say, I'll take away the church. Like the church won't even exist anymore. And by the way, just so you know, there's a lot of churches that were started whose doors are closed, whose buildings are demolished or being used by something else. Just because we live in a season enjoying and seeing the fruit of God's blessing and God doing miracles and, and all the great things he's doing, it doesn't mean it's always gonna be that way. Jesus says, repent. But then he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says. And he gives that promise to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And I don't have time to fully get into that, but man, what we're gonna see is all the promises that he gives. Ultimately, they're summarized in Revelation 21.7. It summarizes all of the seven where we read the one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. In essence, man, man, as you repent, you get to spend eternity with me. It's going to be better than you can even imagine. But what he does is he gives us three words. Number one, he says, I want you to remember. I want you to remember. Go back. Think about what you did at first. Number two, I want you to repent. And by the way, there's a difference between repentance and the emotions of remorse and regret. Remorse and regret are just feeling bad that either you've been called out or maybe you're literally convicted and you know that you're convicted and you feel badly about it, but you don't actually receive you don't change. Repentance is when you change. When you say, God, I, uh, Christ, I'm not only receiving your message, I'm going to repent and respond to your, to your message. He said to remember, to repent. And then he said, repeat. Repeat the works you did before. But this time, church, don't do it 
to be right. Do this because you love me and because you want what I want. And those three words, I would say as we leave here today, they're relevant for us. Yes, they were relevant for the church in Ephesus. They're relevant for us here today. Remember, repent, and repeat. A marriage that suffers from a lack of intimacy doesn't have to be a, a marriage that dies. There can be the renewed sense of intimacy. There's a, the, the, there can be restoration. There can be reconciliation. In the same way, the person who has failed, who, if, they're gonna, if we're gonna be open and objective, say, yeah, God, that's me. Man, we don't, we don't have to stay there. No, the great hope is this. You can be restored, but you gotta remember. You gotta repent, and you've got to repeat. And as we do that, guys, we can have the incredible hope that God has not done with us. And that lack of intimacy that maybe we've experienced can be restored and renewed by the Holy Spirit. He can do this as we respond to what he's called and asked us to do. So Father, I pray that as your church leaves, these are sobering messages. It makes us look deep within and first of all acknowledge that our view sometimes of the world is not all that it should be. First of all, our view that, every, that life should just go perfectly for serving you is just not true. We're gonna, we're gonna have trouble. We're gonna face persecution. But God, also this view of, of that I can just do whatever I want because, man, I'm saved by grace and I'm kept by grace and so I can just do whatever. That's just not true either. Lord, you have high expectations of your bride. And God, I believe that just like you've walked, your spirit was walking among the, the seven lampstands there, the seven churches, God, you've never missed a service here at Grace Bible Church. Your spirit knows this church. Your spirit knows us. And I'm just praying that this week in some way, that your church would be brought to a place of repentance. Lord, would you convict us of anything that, that is motivated by a sense of being right, a sense of, of, of anything other than what it should be, something that is motivated by our love for you. May we stand for right, may we, may we fight for what really matters, but God, may we do it motivated first and foremost by our love for you and our desire to have your approval. And so God, as we repent, I wanna thank you for the, for the great work that you're gonna do in and through your church. God, I believe that you're not done and I believe the best is yet to come. And so God, for what you have in store for us, we thank you. And we pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. tonight, 5 p.m., all church meeting. See you there, you're dismissed.